Hello, and welcome to Simple Pursuit, the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our prayer that you will grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that you will be blessed and challenged as you listen in. Grab your Bible, because here is today's teaching. All right, now on to the gospel business at hand, because that's why we're here. Romans chapter 1, take your Bible and open it, if you would, to Romans chapter 1. We have been working our way through the New Testament this year. Um, If you're visiting with us today, just to fill you in, last year we read through the Old Testament in a year, and this uh, chronologically uh, didn't hit every chapter, uh, but we're reading one chapter a day, five days a week. And so this year, we've uh, been working through the New Testament. It just so happens there are 260 chapters in the New Testament, and five days a week means you get to read 260 days out of the year. And so right now, this time of the year, we are in Romans chapter 1. We're looking at verses 16 and following today. And so how you understand how I, when, I, when we decided to go to the New Testament this year, I sat down with that reading list, and this was the, the chapter that uh, just jumped off the page for the chapters that you'll be reading this week. We've been watching on news, uh, in the papers, online, maybe not so much the newspapers anymore, but certainly online, on TV, things like Target. I've never been a Yankees fan, a big-time Yankees fan, until they played the Dodgers this weekend. Um, we've got... Um, Bud Light, other brands and stores, some of which you might be surprised at how many are taking steps to pr- promote Pride Month. The reality is, is that we can boycott, we can do all of those things. But when you read Romans chapter 1, you read about what's happening and what's happened in every generation since Adam and Eve walked out of the garden, since Adam and Eve decided to believe a lie rather than take God at his word. It has happened in every generation. It has happened in every society because as scripture teaches us, there's nothing new under the sun. America is following all the other so-called great societies of the past, the Roman Empire. Just go do a little research on their emperors and you'll see those emperors fit quite nicely in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and following. We're, we're, we're just, we're walking down the same road as history, because history repeats itself. Do you know why history always repeats itself? Not because we don't learn from history, but because we are sinners. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And it, with every generation, that truth is renewed. With every single one of us, that truth is renewed. It was not like that in the beginning. Humanity was with God in the garden. And in that relationship, it was broken because of sin. Paul had something to say to the Romans about the power of the gospel. And it's really the power of the gospel that is the focus of this entire letter to the Roman believers. It's really verse 16 and 17 is the really the theme of the book or the letter to the Romans. Because without 16 and 17, we would still be stuck in 18 through 32. And it is this chapter 
that reminds us and calls us to live with an urgency for the gospel because everyone needs the gospel. So if you'll follow along, I'll read from verse 16 down to verse 23, and then we'll cover the rest as we work our way through the text. For the wrath of God, excuse me, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in the righteousness of God, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Let's pray together. Lord, show us, is my prayer, show us why we must live with an urgency for the gospel. Lord, show us why we need it. Show us why we must believe it. Lord, show us why our own religious morality is not enough. Lord, magnify your grace and your mercy this morning as you are exalted above all the others. Father, against the backdrop of the ugly stain of our sin, may the magnificence of your mercy and your glory and your grace glisten and shine. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Allow me to set the context of what's happening in Romans in this opening chapter quickly. So, so far, Paul has said, my name is Paul. I am called by God to spread the gospel. Second thing, he says, I am thankful for you, and I am encouraged by what the gospel has produced in your life in Rome. He's already heard. He's not visited. His desire is to get to Rome, to continue to share the gospel, and that's the third thing. I want to come to you as we continue to proclaim the gospel in Rome and beyond. Rome was the crossroads. It's the epicenter of life in that time, and if he could get to Rome to share the gospel, surely the gospel would go to the other most parts of the earth. The fourth thing he says is, I am not ashamed of the gospel, because if anyone knew Paul firsthand what the gospel was and is, he clearly states in verse 16, it is the power of God for salvation for anyone who believes by faith. Think about Paul's testimony for a moment. Paul was a man who hated Jesus. He never met Jesus, but he hated him. And he hated what he was doing to Judaism. He hated that there were Jews turning from following the old traditional ways to this new way as a, followers, as a follower of Jesus. He didn't like Jesus, and he hated the followers of Jesus, so much so that he was a religious zealot. He was able to check a lot of those religious boxes off of his list every single day. He hated Jesus. 
He hated the followers of Jesus so much so that he oversaw the stoning of Stephen. You can see that in Acts chapter 7. He was on his way to Damascus to arrest more Christians with an arrest warrant in his hand, signed by the Jewish leadership of, of uh, Jerusalem, certainly to see more thrown in prison and more die. But he found out all that that stuff that he thought was of God was a sham. Because one day Jesus met him on the road, that road to Damascus. Jesus called him out and he said, he said Paul, what you're doing, you are doing against me. You are persecuting me. And from that moment, Jesus changed his life. And he wrote to Timothy, Timothy, you know I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was insolent. I was an insolent opponent of the gospel. And he goes on to say there, but I decided to change myself. That's not what he said. He tells Timothy in 1 Timothy, he says, but I received mercy. Something from the outside that came in and changed his heart. And that's the testimony of anyone who comes to faith in Jesus. I have received mercy. He gives the theme of the letter in 16 and 17, which we've already said. And now we read to what happens to the one who says, I don't need the gospel. We read about the one who, who says, I don't need God. We read about the one who suppresses the truth. And yes, it is true that Paul could have written this letter to the Americans. He could have written it to the American church. Ultimately, the old saying, a leopard can't change its spots, is true of the sinfulness of humanity. We alone, within our own power, are not able to change or insulate ourselves from sin. Now, it could be nice to skip over this passage or never read it at all because it does sound so negative. We like our warm, fuzzy little gods that we've created, many of which we believe he will bless whatever we get involved in and we'll just look past our sin, which we sin only according to our own code of morality rather than God's word, which clearly he's given us his standard here. But you'll remember the story from your childhood that before the ugly duckling transformed into the beautiful swan, it was first the ugly duck. 18 through 32 is a description of the ugly duck. It's what you were before Christ. And if you're not in Christ this morning, then it is clearly where you are without any inter intervention on God's behalf. It isn't just an ugly duck, but it's an ugly duck swimming in the cesspool of sin and lostness. So here's what happens in verse 18. You have the rejection of God. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We have the wrath of God revealed in verse 18. The reason the righteousness of God, Paul says in verse 17, is revealed from faith for faith is because the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. You need to know that God is personally and intensely involved in verses 18 through 32. He doesn't remove himself. He is intimately, personally, intensely involved in these verses. Now, we need to understand that his wrath is not the same as ours. We typically get angry for self-centered reasons. We are intent on causing someone harm or hurting someone's feelings. Or like a toddler, 
when we don't get that sucker that daddy's dangling in our face because mama come in the room and said, no, she can't have that or he can't have that. And that, t- that toddler starts what? Screaming, stomping feet, runs to the couch, buries the head in the pillow, screams bloody murder. That's not a quality description of God's wrath. <laughs> Here's the truth, though. His wrath is proper. His wrath is inevitable. It is an inevitable reaction of his deity towards sin. It, it's his reaction. It's a holy reaction. As much as grace and mercy God has and righteousness, God has wrath. As much joy as he has, he has wrath. He is not that toddler throwing that temper tantrum so that he gets his way. Not at all. But his wrath is revealed from the holiest of holies, from heaven itself. Not from his pacifier being taken away by someone over him. He is in control. That's why Paul says it's from heaven. That's him sending it. But why wrath? What what cause could our warm, fuzzy God that we have created react this way? He reacts that way. First off, he's not the warm, fuzzy God we've created, but he reacts that way because of sin in the form of what Paul says, unrighteousness and ungodliness. I like the way Alistair Begg defined this ungodliness simply as men and women attempting to reject God's right to rule over their life. That's ungodliness, rejecting the rule, the the correct and rightful rule of God over our lives. That's the vertical aspect of those two. Unrighteousness, which is what's carried out for the rest of the chapter, is on that horizontal level for if this is not right, this will not be right. We get the vertical aspect wrong. We get the horizontal aspect wrong, which is depraved, dingy, and dreadful. Now, how is this expressed in man? The ungodliness and the unrighteousness. How is that expressed in humanity? Well, it happens because we suppress the truth. Verse 18b. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. As a result of ungodliness and unrighteousness, it is expressed by Paul as saying that we have suppressed the truth. Kent Hughes described that as literally holding something down and not letting it up. It's kind of like the teenager who's been told to put their phone away and go to sleep. And so they suppress the light of the truth by covering themselves up with a blanket, suppressing the truth of their disobedience, of the existence of the light. And this is what it is to suppress the truth. It happened in the very first sin all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve believed the serpent. Adam and Eve believed the lie of the serpent, which was God's holding something back from you. If you'll just eat this, you'll be like him. They believed that lie, and as a result of their lie, they come to discover that now life is going to be full of hardship. Life is going to be full of bitterness. Life is going to be full of difficulty. They'll suffer along the way. And in the end, 
They'll return to that which they came from. All because of the serpent's lie that they believed. The serpent that suppressed the truth. The serpent that led Adam and Eve to suppress the truth. God didn't really mean what he said. So because they chose to suppress the truth, every generation after that has suppressed the truth of God's presence, of God's existence. And now, we're not seeking for God any more than they were. We sinners would actually be hiding from God because of the nakedness of our sin before the justice and wrath of God. Why do you think Adam and Eve were hiding? They were ashamed. They knew God was there. They knew God was coming back. So they tried to hide themselves. They tried to suppress the truth. One objection that you'll often hear is how can someone be accountable to God for having never heard of him? Well, Paul assumes that that question is coming. And so he jumps ahead in verse 19. He says, what can be known about God is plain because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Friends, there will be no one standing before the judgment seat of God that will have a legitimate excuse for not knowing Jesus. There will be no one standing before the throne of God with a legitimate excuse for not knowing God. He has revealed himself every single day. Creation speaks of his presence. Psalm 119, remember what I read at the beginning of our time together this morning? Remember what the opening verse was? The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, there are no words whose voice is not heard. God has revealed himself intimately in creation. That speaks of his presence. Now we call that, I shouldn't have used the word intimately, that comes through salvation. But he has made it perfectly clear we call that general revelation. General revelation. It's not all of his attributes. It's not all of it. But these two are listed. His invisible attributes, which are eternal power and divine nature. God has stitched within our human mind and our human heart his existence and his power. Creation being the work of God. And in the work of creation, God's power God's divinity are clearly seen. He has put it, all of those little intricacies together down to the last skin cell that covers us. Creation shows that there is a God of eternal power and a divine nature. But some would say, but I like the theory of evolution. Then you're suppressing the truth of God who is the creator of heaven and earth. Now, general or natural revelation is not saving revelation or special revelation. As when someone hears the gospel and they come to faith because faith comes by hearing. That's why we must live with urgency with the gospel in mind to share that special truth. 
But the beauty and the complexity of creation carries with it the responsibility that we have to acknowledge the creator, both as powerful and as living above that which is created. This is why, my friend, you can go to the jungles of Central America, of South America, the desert plains of Africa, find some lost tribe out in the bush of of Australia, and there you will find people with some kind of deity that they are worshiping. You will find something, some kind of form of worship that God has written that into us. Ecclesiastes tells us that he has written eternity on our hearts. There's a longing in there. And those who try to ignore that longing from the true God are suppressing the truth. So to disbelieve God's existence, to disbelieve all that he has written into us is an act of rebellion. And that act of rebellion requires a response so that those who stand before God are without excuse, literally stripped of any defense. Look at verse 21. We will all worship something, he says. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We're going to worship something. We're going to worship something. So we are without excuse, but there is a distortion When we suppress the truth, there's now truth distorted. So rather than worshiping our creator, we fall into idolatry and we start worshiping the creation. When we suppress the truth as it is distorted, we we think about it in relation to creation. I mean, go home and watch the Weather Channel. Go watch Fox Weather, AccuWeather, Weatherbug, or Dale Nelson. I've been watching him since I was four years old. What happens when the weather goes crazy? God doesn't get the blame. Who does? Mother Nature. It's snowing in South Texas in 2004. Christmas Eve. Y'all remember that? I think it snowed here too. Where I grew up, it was a whole foot of snow. Woo, Mother Nature's. She sure is acting funny these days. What? Well, it's easier to deal with fake news Mother Nature than a God who controls every drop of rain and who the Bible says causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. The God who is still in control of the seasons. The God who is still in control of the sun's rising and the setting. From one to the other, the name of the Lord is to be praised. Is Mother Nature in charge of God's mercies being new every day? We've got to think critically about this stuff. You see, we will worship something, and when we worship something other than the living and true God, we suppress the truth. And so Paul says that we made the choice to not honor God or give thanks to him, but in turning away from him in suppressing of the truth, we've become futile in our thinking and dark in our heart. Friends, when you turn away from the light, it only gets darker. There's no other light out there. It's never lighter. It's never brighter when you turn away from the light into the darkness. Verse 23, we give credit where credit is not due. We exchange the glory of God for images, idolatry resembling the creature rather than the creator. We take what he made and pass it off as our own. In Acts chapter 14, that happens in Paul's ministry. He is with Barnabas 
They stop off in a city called Lystra. And there the crowds, they see Paul heal a man through Christ, of course. And they begin to worship Paul and Barnabas as gods. The priest of Zeus come out. And Paul doesn't say, you know, I'm glad you guys have Zeus to worship. We just worship something a little bit different. We're Jesus guys. You're the Zeus group. We're the Jesus guys. It's all one and the same, right? That's not what he says. He says, stop. He says, we're men just like you. We bring you good news from these empty things of the living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. And he says this, listen, in past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, these men scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifices to them. You hear Paul's plea? Where did he plead? He pleaded to creation. It is this God who has brought rain for you. It is this God who has made your crops fruitful and given you what satisfies your heart. He is the one. It's not Zeus. It's not me. It's not Barnabas. We will worship something. We will give affection to something. We will even do so to good things. The danger for us is that when those good things become God things. We cannot let that happen. This is why the moralist will not be able to stand before God because his or her good moral behaviors is what they're counting on. With their good moral behavior, they're banking on it being enough. Many of you know people who don't trust in Jesus. They don't ever come to church, but they seem to be good, upright people, don't they? They leave a good tip, they pay their taxes. They vote like you. Might even be concerned about some of the same social issues that you're concerned about these days. Their good morality is their God. That bank will be bankrupt when it's time to withdraw those funds on Judgment Day. This is why, back in verse 17, the gospel is the power of God because. It is his righteousness that we need to stand before God. And it only comes from God through Jesus Christ by faith. We will not stand on our own morality and our own righteousness. We can turn many good things into God things. Our work, our children, our homes, our marriage, our money, our politics, our sports, self-actualization, whatever other warm, fuzzy jargon we want to throw in there our pronouns. Anytime we establish something as being more important to me than God's glory, we sin and we are guilty of idolizing the creature rather than the creator. And there's a consequence to the suppression of truth. Look at verse 24 and following. There's a consequence to the rejection and the suppression of the truth. In verse 24, we read, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and, and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. There are consequences 
What is that consequence? The consequence is that God has given us what we want. He has given us what we want. We also understand that God is actively involved in this handing over. It's not just passive in it, but it's he's active. He gives people over to the desires of their hearts. And we think because he's given us over, he must be okay with it. He's not okay with it. How do we know he's not okay with it? Because he sent Jesus to the cross to pay for it. But here's how we understand the difference. If you were in a boat and God were holding the rope on the shoreline to keep it from being dragged down by the current, the passive view on this says that God just lets go of the rope. The active view says he confirms the course that it's going to follow is disastrous downstream and he doesn't just let go of the the rope, he pushes the boat. He gives it a shove offshore. He gives us what we want. God gives those who bear his image over to sin, and that sin, that is an active process. The punishment of sin is sin. And when people act, when we act as if we do not know the truth about God, our hearts become increasingly dark, and we move into idolatry. Idols cannot speak, they cannot write, there is no power, there is no revelation. Hence what Proverbs chapter 29, 18 says, good heavens, it's not about the vision of the church, it's about the revelation of God for his people. When there is no revelation of God, which we have in his word now, the people cast off restraint. So we read verses 29 and following. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, gave them up to a base debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, uh, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they do not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. The question as we read 28 through 32 is, do do you see yourself? It's real easy to pick this up and throw a stone at people in our society. But the question is, do you see yourself in that list? Or at least your former self, by God's grace. Verses 24 through 27, lustful sexual sin, sexual impurity, immorality. In general terms, God gave people over to that sexual sin because they abandoned the true God and began to worship idols. And in the worship of those idols, there was sexual sin involved. It became normalized. Basically, it was part of their false worship. Homosexuality is on Paul's mind here. Is it the only sin or is it the sin of all sins? No, that belongs to blasphemy. There are a whole lot of sins, though, that we're all guilty of. The point here that Paul is making is that in our sin, in our suppression of the truth, we turn the created order upside down. It's an inversion and perversion. And it's clear that God created Adam and Eve, male and female, that he ordained those two, male and female, that they should become one flesh. Anything other than that in marriage is a perversion and an inversion of the created order. But what is the penalty that Paul mentions? Being handed over to the sin. That which is unnatural results 
in death because the wages of sin is death. Is it just the sin of homosexuality that results in death? No. You're a liar? Welcome. Your sentence is death. You're, you're greedy? Welcome. The wages of greed is death. That is the just penalty for sin all the way back to the very beginning. Unless we go on thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought, Paul concluded that list with just more than homosexuality. He gives us a whole list of the depraved mind, and he forges a connection between rejecting God and our sin. We are filled with unrighteousness. We are filled with evil. We are filled with greed and malice. You know what greed does? It brings on economic disorder and disaster. The next five revolve around envy or social disorder. Envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, a.k.a. politics. The last 12, gossips, slanderers. You don't have to be a hater of God just to qualify here. We can just share something we think is truth that's not truth and be guilty of gossip. Insolent, proud, boastful, inventors of evil. There you have the breakdown of the family, disobedient to parents. You have relational breakdowns with foolishness, faithlessness, heartless and ruthless. The fullest extent of the depth of our depravity, though, is found in verse 32. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they do not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. They affirm the sinful behavior. So how do we respond? What is the response? There's only one. There's only one response, and it's verses 16 and 17. Behind the good news of this gospel is a hard-hitting, ugly news that we are implicated and guilty of these acts toward God. And the gospel is the antivenom, if you will, to the snake bite that we encountered in the garden. It is the only cure for what ails us, that we embrace the gospel by trusting that Jesus Christ is the foundation of victory over sin. Listen to what Paul writes to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now we also have to remember we see ourselves in that list. And then he says this, and such were some of you. Past tense. What changed? What happened? But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Friends, Everyone needs the gospel. You need it. I need it. We all need it. And we must embrace the gospel, for the gospel is for everyone. And we are given the righteousness. And it is not that we are just forgiven of our sin, as if the chalkboard or the whiteboard is wiped clean with a clean slate. 
But friends, we are given righteousness. It is not our righteousness. It is the righteousness of Christ Jesus. He gives it to us. That is why we can stand before God. Not because I've checked all the boxes, but because Jesus did. And he gave his life as a ransom on the cross. It's that we've been released from death row. And instead of death row, we are granted something like the Congressional Medal of Honor. And it's not of our own doing. That's not my Medal of Honor. That belongs to Jesus. But he gives it. And he gives it freely because he paid the price. Thank you for listening today. For more information regarding Coastal Oaks Church, like service times, or what to expect upon your visit, go to our website at coastaloakschurch.org. May God bless you in the journey and the simple pursuit of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord.